through this series in Jeremiah. Um, we've recommended various books that you might find helpful to read. Uh, one that's quite different from the rest is the one written by Eugene Peterson, who's an American uh, pastor, preacher, lecturer, also recently a Bible translator. The New Living Translation is his work. It's a very unique translation of the Scriptures. But he's written a book on Jeremiah that we've recommended before, and you can actually get it, I think, still with two of his other books for a ridiculous price. So if you want a good book to read on holiday, uh, this is what it's called. The original version is called Run With The Horses, based on that verse that we looked at the other week about being able to run with horses. And it's a stimulating book because uh, Peterson's one of these people who thinks from a kind of different angle to other people. And most people writing about uh, Jeremiah focus on his ministry as a prophet, someone who proclaimed God's word. Uh, but Peterson asked an interesting question. I was very challenged uh, as a preacher myself of some kind as I read this. And he writes this uh, about the private and personal life of Jeremiah. What was the man like? He writes, what was Jeremiah really like? What did he do when he was alone? When no one was watching, how did he conduct himself? When there was no audience to address, how did he behave? Good question for every preacher. What did Jeremiah do when he was not staging confrontations with the religious leaders of Jerusalem? What did he do when he was not standing people on their ears with his thunderous prophecies? What did he do when he wasn't colliding with temple officials and upsetting the status quo? What did he do when there was no audience to address? And then he answers very sharply and I think accurately. He concludes, there is a single straightforward answer to these questions. He prayed. And today as we try and tackle these three chapters in the book that bears his name, it's this aspect of Jeremiah's life that I want to focus on. So I've chosen the title, The Praying Prophet, as we look at these three chapters. Now, you really do need a Bible in front of you because I'm going to read some of it and then we're going to refer to the rest. So if you haven't got one with you, just wave your hand and someone will pass one. There are plenty of Bibles around. But you need to turn to Jeremiah 14 to 16, page 772. And let me just give you an outline of where we're going with this, or hope we're going with God's help. Um, three chapters, three features of Jeremiah's prayers. Chapter 14, the focus is on confession. Jeremiah identifies with his people and pleads with God that he might have mercy, what we've been singing about. Uh, chapter 15, he turns to his own personal life and the theme there is complaint. He's got some grievances in prayer against God. Then as we come to chapter 16, Jeremiah finally reaffirms with confidence that God indeed is trustworthy and that he's got great plans which one day will be fulfilled for the whole world. Now we don't have time to read all three chapters but uh, to get a flavour, let's read chapter 14. Now as we read this, uh, try and identify who's speaking. This is a dialogue between God speaking to Jeremiah and through him to the nation. But then Jeremiah isn't some kind of passive dictating machine. You know, we get this idea about prophecy that God speaks and suddenly you just start speaking something you never even thought of mechanically. Now you'll find that Jeremiah, when he gets God's word, he often argues about it. 
and ask God, maybe you could just change that. It's a bit too harsh. Uh, maybe you've prayed like that sometime. Well, this is real prayer. So, let's look at chapter 14 then of Jeremiah. This is the word of the Lord to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Judah mourns, her cities languish. They wail for the land and a cry goes up from Jerusalem. The nobles send their servants for water. They go to the cisterns but find no water. They return with their jars unfilled. Dismayed and despairing, they cover their heads. The ground is cracked because there's no rain in the land. The farmers are dismayed and cover their heads. Even the doe in the field deserts her newborn fawn because there's no grass. Wild donkeys stand on the barren heights and pant like jackals. Their eyesight fails for lack of pasture. Although our sins testify against us, O Lord, do something for the sake of your name, for our backsliding is great. We've sinned against you. O hope of Israel, its saviour in times of distress, why are you like a stranger in the land, like a traveller who stays only a night? Why are you like a man taken by surprise, like a warrior powerless to save? You are among us, O Lord, and we bear your name. Do not forsake us. This is what the Lord says about the people. They greatly love to wander. They do not restrain their feet. So the Lord does not accept them. He will now remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. Then the Lord said to me, Do not pray for the well-being of this people. Although they fast, I will not listen to their cry. Although they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Instead, I will destroy them with the sword, famine and plague. But I said, our sovereign Lord, the prophets keep telling them, you will not see the sword or suffer famine. Indeed, I'll give you lasting peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I've not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They're prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own minds. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the prophets who are prophesying in my name. I did not send them, yet they are saying, no sword or famine will touch this land. Those same prophets will perish by sword and famine, and the people that are prophesying their prophesying too will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and sword. There will be no one to bury them or their wives, their sons or their daughters. I will pour out on them the calamity they deserve. Speak this word to them. Let my eyes overflow with tears night and day without ceasing. For my virgin daughter, my people, has suffered a grievous wound, a crushing blow. If I go into the country, I see those slain by the sword. If I go into the city, I see the ravages of famine. Both prophet and priest have gone to a land they know not. Have you rejected Judah completely? Do you despise Zion? Why have you afflicted us so that we cannot be healed? We hope for peace, but no good has come for a time of healing, but there is only terror. O Lord, we acknowledge our wickedness and the guilt of our fathers... We have indeed sinned against you. For the sake of your name, do not despise us. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember your covenant with us and do not break it. Do any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? Do the skies themselves send down showers? No, it is you, our Lord, O Lord, our God. Therefore, our hope is in you, for you are the one who does all this. Well, you get a flavor the kind of way that Jeremiah prayed. And I simply say, speaking for myself, probably for most of us, that very few of us pray like that. But let's come first of all to chapter 14, which really the theme is confession. Uh, the chapter begins 
as does all real prayer, not with what we say to God, but what God says to us. Prayer is always responsive. Otherwise, we just imagine something out of our own heads. So the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, verses 1 to 6. And what's the subject? Well, it's very simple. It's concerning the drought. And there follows a graphic description of a devastating drought. Or droughts, the word is actually plural in the original. If you've ever lived in or visited or seen pictures on television of countries affected by drought, then the images speak for themselves. Despairing people, dried up land, dying animals. But you ask yourself, why is this a word from the Lord? It's not even a weather forecast or a warning. It's a weather report. Is God in the weather report business? Can you not see that it's a drought? But what you need to do is read between the lines. Behind the weather. Let me take an example. Last week it was reported, you'll have probably seen it on the news, that the ice in Greenland is melting far faster than everyone thought. Now, as soon as you hear that, all right, unless you've been asleep for the last 30 years or 20 years, you know immediately what the subject is. It's all about global warming. And who's responsible? Well, most scientists, the overwhelming number of people, think we are responsible. So as soon as they say the ice caps are melting, you think, uh-oh, that's my problem again. I better not drive so far or do something or, you know, cut down my, what is it, carbon footprint or something or other. You don't need to be told that. Now, when the Lord speaks to his people Israel and says, look out the window, there's a drought. They don't need to be told what caused it. There might be atmospheric reasons, of course. But the root cause, they knew, the root cause was that the weather was caused by the Lord, the weather controller. When God made his agreement with the people of Israel, what we call a covenant, the Old Covenant, Old Testament, he had a unique deal with them. It doesn't apply to us today, but with them he had a unique deal. He said, if you follow me, It'll rain in season, you'll get good harvests and crops, and you'll be satisfied and flourish. But he said, when you see there's no rain and there's a drought, you're responsible. This is my judgment. This is mentioned in several places in the Old Testament in the first part of the Bible. This, here's one from uh, Deuteronomy 11. Be careful, says the Lord, this is in preparing them. When you get to the promised land, he says, be careful or you'll be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them, then the Lord's anger will burn against you, he'll shut the heavens so that it will not rain, and the ground will yield no produce, and you'll soon perish from the good land the Lord your God is giving you. And the Lord is saying to his people, look around, look at the drought. What's the problem? You are. And we know that this is true, because what follows immediately? Well, Jeremiah begins to pray. It's almost certainly Jeremiah praying here. Some people think it's the people of Israel, but it's Jeremiah, I think, identifying the people. What, did, what would he pray if there's a drought? You'd pray, Lord, send the rain. What does Jeremiah pray? Lord, forgive our sins. He identifies with God's people. Notice the plural, our. 
the word the Bible uses to describe this kind of prayer is, is a word that we don't use very often nowadays. It's the word intercession. The Bible describes such a person as an intercessor. An intercessor is kind of an intermediary who stands between God and people and pleads on their behalf. And in verses 7 to 9, you see Jeremiah's intercession. He admits the guilt of the, of the people. Our sins are backsliding. He appeals to help for help from God. He says, God, you're the hope of Israel. It's Saviour in times of distress. And he says, Lord, you're acting just like a tourist who doesn't care. Or like a soldier who's suddenly been overwhelmed. Caught by surprise. So he makes an appeal to God. And notice what his appeal is. He is appealing to God's honour. What is at stake here, he says, Lord, is not our situation primarily. What is at stake here is your honour. Do something, he says, for the sake of your name. And he concludes by saying, you are among us, Lord. We bear your name. Do not forsake us. Different kind of prayer, isn't it? kind of prayers we normally pray. And you think to yourself, surely the Lord will be moved by this appeal. He's got the right theology. He's got the right approach. He's got the right kind of prayer. But the Lord's answer is, no way. No more mercy, only punishment. This is what the Lord says about these people. They greatly live to wonder. They do not restrain their feet, so the Lord does not accept them. He will now remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. And not only that, he says to Jeremiah, you may as well stop praying for these people. Because it won't have any effect whatever. It's a waste of time. And tell them to stop praying as well. These, these are very harsh words, are they not? No more prayers, only destruction. Then the Lord said to me, Do not pray for the well-being of this people. Although they fast, I'll not listen to their cry. Though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'll not accept them. Instead, I'm going to destroy them with sword, famine and plague. Now this, frankly, friends, is... A long way removed from the kind of God that we picture in Sunday school, is it not, sometimes? A God who's going to destroy his people with sword, famine and plague. But he is still the same God. It must have been devastating for Jeremiah. So what does he do? Well, he's still praying to God. So he says, hang on a minute, there's a mitigating excuse here. He says, Sovereign Lord, it's the prophets. There's these other prophets who keep telling him it won't happen. You will not see the sword or suffer famine. I'll give you lasting peace in this land. As it were, he says, Lord, just have mercy. It's not really their fault. They've been taken in by false prophets telling lies. And the Lord's answer is no comfort at all. He says, yes, the prophets are prophesying lies. So they'll be the first to suffer judgment. But no one is going to escape. But should we think this is a harsh, vindictive, uncaring God... Jeremiah speaks words which reveal the Lord's anguish about this. The Lord doesn't love doing this kind of thing. Expressed by his prophet for the suffering of his people, speak this word to them, let my eyes overflow with tears night and day without ceasing, for my virgin daughter, my people, has suffered a grievous wound, a crushing blow. Now, when the Lord speaks that word of compassion, you can almost imagine the conversation. Jeremiah's thinking, hang on a minute, maybe there's some hope after all. And so we see another plea, despite being told not to pray for them, Jeremiah prays again in verse 19. There's a further admission of guilt. Oh Lord, he says, we acknowledge our wickedness, the guilt of our fathers, we've sinned against you. Notice again, he appeals to God's honour. 
For the sake of your name, do not despise us. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember your covenant with us. Don't break it. And a further affirmation that God can do this. He says, what about those other idols? They, they can't bring back the rain. Only you can do it, Lord. Therefore, our hope is in you. You're the one who does all this. God, you set the drought. You alone can bring the rain. And you alone can forgive the sin that caused this disastrous situation. Now, that is real prayer. That is real intercession. And today, as then, such prayers and such intercessors are in short supply. That kind of prayer is rare. When disaster strikes a nation, either God is ignored or blamed. We need people who know how to pray with the glory of God uppermost in their minds. The honour of God's name. Another book we recommended is Philip Ryken's book on Jeremiah, which is really the classic. If you can save up about £25, it's well worth reading. This is what he writes. The glory of God should always be the primary motive for prayer. Instead of asking God to do something for your sake, ask him to do something for his sake. And he continues, if it proves difficult to put God's glory in the same sentence with a prayer request, then it's time to find something more important to pray about. Let's think about that for a moment. If you're praying for something and you can't put God's glory in the same prayer, then find something more important to pray about. The primary motive for Jeremiah's prayer was the glory of God, the future of God's chosen people. It was a matter of immense importance to him. And I simply ask you, as I ask myself, is this characteristic of my prayers? When you look through the bulletin, maybe you scanned it before the service, did you notice on Wednesday we're going to meet as a church and what our focus is going to be? We're going to be praying for the Scottish parliamentary elections. See, what we tend not to do is to forget all about it, to vote, and then at the end we complain about the legislation that's passed and things that politicians are doing. It's too late. We should be praying before for our nation. Praying before for our politicians and uppermost in our concerns are that God might be glorified in our nation, that his honour is at stake and we should be praying for his church that bears its name, that we don't disgrace God but that we honour him by our lives. Challenging stuff. Confession. Let's move on. We turn from confession to complaint. Jeremiah's prayed this. Chapter 14 finishes. Lord, he says... Our hope is in you. You are the one who does all this. Now, you think to yourself, surely now his prayers are going to succeed. And you turn to chapter 15 and it's like cold water. These are some of the most devastating words that God ever spoke, I believe, to anybody who prayed. The Lord's final answer. Then the Lord said to me, even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not go out to this people. Send them away from my presence. Let them go. Now, as soon as he said Moses and Samuel, if you grew up in Israel, you knew who he was talking about. If there was an intercessor's hall of fame, Moses and Samuel would be number one and number two. Remember Moses? He interceded for the people when he came down with the Ten Commandments and they were worshipping a golden calf and indulging in sexual immorality. And God said, I'm going to wipe these people out. And, and, and Moses pleaded with the Lord and the Lord stayed his hand. Remember Samuel when the people sinned? 
and the Philistines took over their nation. And then they prayed for a king. And each time Samuel, this great prophet priest, he stood before God and he pleaded with God and God changed his mind, as it were, from a human perspective. He stayed his hand of judgment. And the Lord says, even if you got these two guys up today, Jeremiah, wouldn't make any difference. They'd have no effect. It's too late. He says their destination is destruction. Verse 2 says there are four destinations. If the people ask, where should we go? What should we do then? The Lord says, four destinations. Death, sword, starvation, captivity. Four destroyers. The sword, the dogs, the birds, the beasts. Records here of the four horsemen, the apocalypse in Revelation 6. And all of this, the Lord says, is the wages of sin. Verses 4 to 9, he says, I'll make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. Manasseh was the worst king ever, 55 years of sin. And the people lived in it, wallowed in it, inherited it. And in the ensuing judgment, God says, there will be no pity from anyone. No compassion from the Lord, verse 6, because there's no change from the people, verse 7, so there'll be no relief from the sufferers, verses 8 to 9, only finally death. Now, it's one thing to hear that kind of thing. You imagine you're the guy who's got to preach it. You're the man who's got to tell the nation, God says, this is your destination, destruction. And that's why Jeremiah then, he just pours out his heart to God. You imagine being told to preach that. I mean, those of us who live in the gospel, they should be so grateful that we, we preach good news against the background of judgment, yeah. But we have hope, as we'll see at the conclusion. In a little while. So Jeremiah pours out these grievances. The first is, he's just consumed because of the unjustified abuse he faces. Verse 10, Alas, my mother, that you gave me birth. A man with whom the whole land strives and contends. I've neither lent nor borrowed, yet everyone curses me. Jeremiah complains, he says, I've done nothing to deserve this. I'm not a loan shark. I'm not a guy who's borrowed money and doesn't want to pay it back. There's no reason for this, and yet I'm the most unpopular person in the whole nation. Everybody is on my back because of my message. All I get is abuse, Lord. And the Lord says, if you look at verse 11, he says to Jeremiah, don't worry, it'll change. Surely, the Lord says, I will deliver you for a good purpose. I'll make your enemies plead with you in times of disaster and times of distress. The Lord assures Jeremiah, it'll change. One day, people, you won't be the most unpopular, you'll be the most popular because everybody will want you to pray for them. And what does Jeremiah say? When? This has gone on for decades. Yeah, Lord, you're telling me this is going to happen, but when will it happen? His second grievance is that of an answered prayer, therefore. Verses 15 to 17. You understand, O Lord. Remember me, care for me, avenge me on my persecutors. You are long-suffering. Do not take me away. Think of how I suffer reproach for your name. The mills of God grind exceeding fine, but they grind exceeding slow. Far too slow for Jeremiah. He wants action now. He says, Lord, do something now. He says, Lord, when I first heard your word, verse 16, he said, when I first heard your words, I ate them. They were my joy and delight. I was just so grateful to be able to proclaim your word. I paid the price. I was ostracized from society. But now, year after year after year, nothing has changed. I'm the focus of abuse. 
and you haven't done anything. And his third complaint is an ending pain. Verse 18, why is my pain an ending? My wound grievous and incurable. Will you be to me like a deceptive brook, like a spring that fails? Unfulfilled expectations. You see, the Lord had promised him that he'd be a spring of living water. He'd be able to find refreshment. And he says, Lord, to me it looks like you've turned out to be a dried up wadi in the desert. You've not come up with the goods, Lord. Now, this is serious prayer. And the second question I ask you about your prayers and mine is, do you ever pray like that? Have you ever prayed like that? Oh, I know you wouldn't do it in the Charlotte Chapel prayer meeting. But in the privacy of your own life, some of you are wrestling with issues that seem unbearable and they just go on and on and it looks like God's not doing anything at all and it doesn't make you the most popular person in the world or even in the church. Have you ever felt or spoken like that to the Lord? Can I suggest, gently, if not, it's either because you're a recent follower of the Lord or you've never really been a serious follower of the Lord. Because my experience is there are times when you feel like that, when you're praying. And the worst thing you can do is to bottle it up, put on an evangelical smile and pretend that all is well. As if the Lord didn't know how you're feeling this morning. How grieved you are, how hurt you are, how painful you feel things. And frustrated you are. Another book on Jerry Mann, Warren Wearsby, lovely American pastor, preacher. Little book, all his books begin with B. The one on Jerry Mann is called Be Decisive. He says, is it unusual for chosen servants of God to become discouraged and endanger their own ministries? No, because every servant of God is human and subject to the weakness of human nature. Then he goes on and says, God doesn't want us to ignore our feelings because that would make us less than human, but he does want us to trust him to change our feelings and start walking by faith. So when Jeremiah pours out his heart, to the Lord like that. What does the Lord do? Does he put a big arm around his shoulder and say, never mind, Jeremiah, it's fine. No, the Lord says to him, Jeremiah, you need to repent. You say, but surely he's the man of God. He's preaching repentance. (laughs) You start with repentance. You continue with repentance. This is what the Lord says to him. If you repent, I'll restore you that you may serve me. If you utter worthy, not worthless words, you'll be my spokesman. Let this people turn to you. Don't turn to them. There's a play on the word turn there four times. If you turn to me, the Lord says, I'll turn to you. But don't turn to this people. Let them turn to you. The great dangers in ministry is that we become like the people that we minister to. To turn to their sins instead of turning them to the Lord. And where this happens, the only solution for us is repentance. Now, whoever you are here this morning, no matter how many years you've served the Lord, no matter how much God has used you in the past, no matter what your status is, if you get to this point, the only way back is repentance. Maybe God is speaking to somebody here this morning. I said at the beginning... God will speak to different ones in different ways. So maybe there's someone here this morning and you're pretty discouraged this morning and you've been wallowing in self-pity and you're asking God why he doesn't do anything and you're feeling like jacking it all in and calling it a day. And God says to you, you need to repent. Turn back to me and I'll turn back to you. And I'll use you again as I promised to do right from the beginning. 
And look what the Lord says to Jeremiah, promise renewed. It says, I'll make you a wall to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, will not overcome you, for I am with you to rescue and save you, declares the Lord. I'll save you from the hands of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the cruel. Now, if, if Jeremiah's hearing this, he remembers something. Way back in the first chapter, the Lord called him and he gave him the same promise, the identical promise of deliverance. Almost the same words. And what does the Lord say to Jeremiah? My promise to you still stands. I have not abandoned you. Nothing has changed, Jeremiah. Your feelings have changed. Your experience has changed. Your bodies may be changed with all the abuse you've suffered. But I'm still the same God who called you. And maybe this morning God is calling you back to ministry. To serve him again. But you need to turn to him. Don't turn to them. So we turn to the third theme. Doing okay. Chapter 16. Confidence. We often think prayer is the means by which we change God's mind. The reality, of course, is that prayer is the means by which God changes our mind. Jeremiah, his heart for his people was that he wanted God. He wasn't one of these prophets of doom who love proclaiming hellfire sermons. If you ever meet a person who loves proclaiming hellfire sermons, he's not a servant of God. No one loves that. He just longed that God might change his mind for this nation. But God says, no, there's no change. So he changed Jeremiah's mind. And when he comes to terms with that, the Lord says, right, Jeremiah, I want you to continue, not only to speak my word, but to live my word out. And as you turn to chapter 16, you see Jeremiah living out God's word. God says to him, Jeremiah, I've got a personal message for you. Three things that you're forbidden. Very interesting. He says, Jeremiah, you're forbidden to get married and have a family. God says to Jeremiah, no family, verses 1 to 4. He says, Jeremiah, you're forbidden to attend funerals. Had a big meal and feast when someone died. And thirdly, he says, and you're not to attend any celebrations like weddings. No feasts, okay? No family, no funerals, no feasts. Now, none of these were the norm for an Israelite. For an Israelite man to be single was not a lifestyle choice. It was just weird. Everybody got married. Uh, going to funerals was not just you felt like it. You always went as a matter of social convention. And to go to feasts and celebrations, it was expected of you. So why does God say this? Well, he says to Jeremiah, don't get married and have a family. Because everybody will then say to you, Jeremiah, how come you never got married and had a family? And Jeremiah will say to them, because... All the children of this generation will lie dead in the streets with no one to bury them. And would you want to bring up kids in that situation of judgment? And when they say to you, Jeremiah, why don't you go to funerals? So the time is coming when there will be so many funerals and dead people, nobody will mourn them at all, not even their own parents. And when they say, Jeremiah, why don't you go to the party next week? Jeremiah will say, there will be no time for parties, it will all be mourning. Can you see what he's doing? He's living out the word of God and the judgment of God in his own personal life at great cost. So by these three actions, Jeremiah lived out God's word, a word of coming judgment. And the Lord tells Jeremiah, when people ask you, and they say, well, well why? Why is God going to do this, do you think? Jeremiah will say, the coming judgment is because of the sins of their fathers. Verse 11, it's because your fathers forsook me, declares the Lord. 
followed other gods and served and worshipped them. They forsook me and didn't keep my law. And also because you've sinned even more greatly. But you've behaved more wickedly than your fathers. Verse 12. See how each of you is following the stubbornness of his evil heart instead of obeying me. And what were the penalty? Thrown into exile. So I will throw you, verse 13, out of this land into a land neither you nor your fathers have known. There you will serve other gods day and night for I'll show you no favour. And he goes on to say, no one will escape. The enemy will be like a fisherman catching all the fish in his net, like a hunter hunting out among the rocks to catch every last animal that's escaped. It's a terribly bleak picture of the wages of sin. When people consistently disobey God and in the end all that's left is God's judgment. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is a consuming fire. That's New Testament quoting Old Testament. He hasn't changed. And imagine being the prophet who has to preach this kind of message. Not just week in, week out. Some of you are getting weary with Jeremiah after 11 studies. You imagine if we preached through Jeremiah for the next 30 years. Boy, we'd soon empty Charlotte Chapel, wouldn't we? We're not going to, by the way. But, but okay, here's the good news. As you read that chapter, you've got time when you go home, read it. But right in the middle of it, suddenly, like a flash of lightning, like a gleam in the darkness, is a, an amazing promise. However, verse 14, However, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when men will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but they will say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he'd banished them, for I'll restore them to the land I gave to their forefathers. You see, when these people of Israel spoke about their history, there was only one event that they always mentioned. We're the people who were rescued from slavery in Egypt. They were redeemed people. It was the seminal moment in their history. And Jeremiah says, the days are coming in the future when no one will even mention Egypt. The days are coming when people say, that's the God who brought us out of captivity. He's looking into the future. And God says, yeah, this generation will suffer the punishment for their sins. But the days are coming when I'll bring these people back again and people will look back in amazement and say, wow, that is just amazing. Seventy years later, a pagan emperor one day got up out of bed and had a bright idea. Why don't I let all those people I've put into exile go back home again? And we'll start with those Jewish people. Wow. And they went back home. Jeremiah was so convinced about it that when the enemy was at the gate, the Babylonians were knocking on the door and about to storm in, he invested in property. <laughs> he bought a field. Because he said it's so sure that God's going to do what he promised in the future. He has absolute confidence. But he also has confidence by faith in a far greater future. We're nearly at the end, all right? He finally turns from prayer to praise. Look at the last three verses of chapter 16. O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my time, refuge in time of distress, to you the nations will come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers possess nothing but false gods, worthless idols that did them no good, do men make their own gods? Yes, but they are not gods. Therefore, I will teach them. This time I'll teach them. My power and might, they will know that my name is the Lord. Jeremiah looks forward to a day when all nations will come from the ends of the earth to worship the one true God. 
when all peoples will know the Lord. He is confident that God will fulfill his promise. And friends, here's the good news. We live in the day when this prophecy is being fulfilled. The good news of Jesus going out to the farthest ends of the earth. The good news to every little people group scattered around the world. Great news. The vision of Wycliffe Bible translators that you know I'm connected with. I see the Northern Ireland representative sitting up there. He'll uh, tell everyone that I said this. But uh, Vision 2025. By 2025, to begin a translation project in the language of every people on earth that needs one. And it's accelerating like that. It's going up. It's, we're reaching the goal. When every person in the world will have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. The promises of Jeremiah and Isaiah. And all the promises will be fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in the midst of judgment, God offers mercy and hope. And Jeremiah ends on a note of confidence as we do this morning. So our theme this morning, almost finished really, this point, has been the praying prophet. Jeremiah interceded with the Lord for his people and he failed. And the Lord says, don't be upset, Jeremiah, because even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, they would have no more success than you. But we live in a day when one whose prayers before God do succeed. We live in the day of the gospel. Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins. His sacrifice was accepted. We, we celebrated it last Sunday on Easter Day. God raised him from the dead. Where is he now? The man Christ Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. That's what the Bible says. Hebrews 7. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So this morning, if you're not a Christian, you are under God's judgment. I don't tell you that because I enjoy telling you that and tell you that because you need to know that. And if you stand before the judgment seat of God one day and your sins are not forgiven, I don't want him saying, you went to Charlotte Chapel and nobody told me. You need to repent. But as you turn to God, he doesn't say, sorry, it's too late, no hope, judgment. What does God say? He says, there is one who pleads for you before the Father, whose sacrifice can meet your needs fully. He can save completely those who come to God through Him. And if you're a Christian this morning, every time you pray, you pray through the Lord Jesus Christ, whoever lives to intercede for you. Final great quote from Rackin on this. This is what he says on this theme of intercession. He says, Get back, Moses. Step aside, Samuel. Move over, Jeremiah. Let Jesus Christ stand before his Father and plead for the salvation of lost sinners. His prayers will never fail. When Jesus prays, God's heart goes out to his people. He invites them into his presence. Because of the intercession of Jesus Christ, at least one prayer, the greatest prayer of all, for the salvation of sinners, will not go unanswered. And so he concludes, unlike Jeremiah, no families, no funerals, no feast. He says, let us eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we live. Let's pray together.
Now at the beginning we ask 